Come to Titus chapter 2, um, verse 6, is uh, the focus for today, but I'll read um, from the beginning of chapter 2, 2, 1 through 6. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. All right, and now let's turn to Proverbs in the Old Testament, approximately in the middle of your Bible, um, the first chapter, Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand works of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This ends the reading of God's word for the moment. You may be seated. So, Titus 2, verse 6, says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. What is it Titus is supposed to do? What is it he's supposed to understand? What is it you, who are younger men here today, are supposed to do? How are you supposed to grow? What kind of lives are you supposed to live? What, is this, what does this mean? That's what we're going to spend our time uh, thinking about uh, today. It's a very important verse, and it's not exactly, um, as I study it more and more, um, exactly what I first thought it was. And I hope that this morning it's, it's helpful to you as we, as we think about this very important uh, word. One of the things that might help us to remember is that Jesus himself um, grew he grew in his body, he was a baby, and then he became a boy, and at one point, he was also a young man. In Luke chapter 2, 
verse 52, we read this, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, there's something that means and something that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus in his divine nature, in the essence that he shares with the Father and the Spirit, that he added or to his wisdom, that the Son of God gained understanding, that he came to know things that he didn't once know. When Luke speaks here, he's not speaking about Jesus in his, according to his divine nature, because God doesn't change. God doesn't grow. God doesn't need, uh, doesn't, doesn't make progress in anything. He simply is and always will be in all of his perfections. Jesus, the Son of God, took on a human nature, though. And his human nature, his humanity, was exactly like yours and mine. It did grow. It did change. It did um, need improvement in some ways. There was a maturing process in Jesus. Now, I don't know uh, what a sinless child looks like. (laughs) I wasn't one, for sure. Um, And I don't think from your laughs that you were either. (laughs) So, but Jesus was one, and nevertheless, there was a maturing process, right? We know this, maybe it's easiest to think about in his body, right? He's little, and then he got bigger, right? He was not fully developed, um, but there seems to be some sense in which that was true in relation to his soul, or his uh, emotions, or his understanding, all these things that the scripture talks about and summarizes as just saying, the heart, The inner self, the inner person, it says very clearly in God's word that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, the wonderful thing about this is that, well, there's a billion things that are wonderful about this, but a wonderful thing about this is that when Jesus did this, as he grew, he, one, understands our process of maturing and growing. He experienced it himself, but he also did it perfectly. Unlike us, didn't, Jesus didn't sort of stumble along the way. In the book of Proverbs, you have different kinds of um, people that need to be educated. And I need to get back to Proverbs here. Uh, one of them... One of them is, is the mocker. Uh, mockers don't typically do too well. <laughs> um, they are hard-hearted, they are calloused, they know the truth and they despise it. Jesus was never a mocker. He was never, he was, he was never needing to be taught at that level. Right? Um, there's another level. Um, sometimes fool is used just in a sort of general way, but there's another term I want you to pay attention to from Proverbs 1. Uh, Proverbs 1, here in the first seven verses, don't worry, we're getting to Titus, right? Uh, This speaking to young men. Proverbs 1 is from a king, a father in particular, um, speaking to his son. Look at verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. 
right? Proverbs, the book of Proverbs comes to us uh, in this form of presentation, is, is presented in this form in which someone older, wiser, more mature speaks to one who is younger and gives instruction, tells them about these things. In a very similar way, this is what Paul is encouraging Titus to do. He's telling the younger men to, to grow and grow in a particular way, which I'm going to get to in just a moment. But while we're thinking, of, while I was talking about categories of people that need to learn, look at verse 4, and this is the key verse for this morning from Proverbs 1. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. That's what the Proverbs are for, in part. It's one of the, this, in this introduction, right, it, it starts out in this way because it's saying, here's what this book is for. Here's how to read this. Here's how to understand it, right? Not all the books of the Bible start this way, right? Some of them you have to figure it out, right? What is, what is this book for? What is it doing? What's God trying to say here? Or what is God saying and what am I trying to understand? Here it tells us right off the bat, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. That was something that Jesus needed. Jesus was simple. He was a youth. He was not a mocker, a hater of wisdom or anything like that. Um, he loved the Lord, he loved truth, he loved wisdom, and in his humanity, he grew in it. He was the son, in some ways, who heard and listened to his father's instruction. Um, both those who were over him, an authority over him in, in his humanity in this world, uh, but of course from uh, uh, the heavenly father as well. He, heard, he, he received instruction, and he grew in knowledge and in discretion. This is something that um, we therefore um, all ought to desire, young men. <laughs> this is something that you ought to desire, to want, to strive after, to pursue, um, as those uh, who have opportunities to teach and to train the young among us, this are, these are our responsibilities. If you are in a position where you have the ability to teach and to train um, those uh, who are younger, this is what the goal is, right? to grow in understanding and prudence and discretion. And that is, I'm, I'm going to assert this morning, what Titus is after here in chapter 2. In Titus, Titus 2, notice how he begins. And it's actually a theme that this whole book uh, is largely centers on. Teaching what accords with sound doctrine. Right? We've talked about this a number of times as we've considered how is this church supposed to live? What is the Christian life supposed to look like? What is Titus as a pastor supposed to emphasize? And it's this connection between having good, solid theology and lives that then flow out of that. He says, don't be like these other people who are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work because they are rejecting the truth of God. They're rejecting the gospel. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Okay, and then in verse 2, we read, older men are to be self, uh, sorry, sober-minded, dignified, and this is the word that we're going to focus on, self-controlled. Do you see that? Sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. This word self-controlled, to my mind, uh, first means having power over oneself, right? The ability to control oneself, right? Um, like you pick up a, a tool, you learn how to use a tool, you have agency over that tool, and if you're good, you're able to use it, right, wisely and with excellence. Similar selves with ourselves. Instead of ourselves being this sort of unwieldy mass that we can't sort of make us make ourselves do what we want to do, instead we have agency and control over our own bodies and souls. Now this is something that is taught in Scripture. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, one of the fruits of the Spirit is um, self-control, and it means exactly that. The etymology of that word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 is control or power over oneself. The word here, though, while it can mean that, or at least some dictionaries will sort of put it in that category, it also has this other meaning, which is very similar and there's overlap, um, but I think it's this, and, and it's this. It means being sound in one's mind, being in one's right mind, or having sense, or having a wholeness and a perspective in the way that you think. This is the other meaning of the word. So in other words, Paul does not use the word he uses in Galatians 5 for self-control here. It's a different word. So this word, for example, is used when, um, you remember the, the demoniac um, was living out among the tombs and doing all kinds of terrible things, uh, the legion of demons that is cast, uh, uh, cast out of him, right? And then they come back and they find the man have, having this quality. And the way it's translated in the Gospels is he was sitting there in his right mind, right? He was sitting there in his his right mind. He, had, he was sound. So if that's what that means, what is Paul saying to older men when he makes this distinction between sober-minded and self-controlled? Or whole-minded? I think it would maybe be one better translation of that. Well, I think by sober-minded, you know, the opposite of scripture is being drunk, right? Sober-minded, you're clear, you're awake, you're... you're present, we might say. Um, there's a certain capability that you have, right? Your senses are not dulled. This word that's translated here, self-controlled, and I think might be better translated as having prudence or whole-mindedness or soundness in the way that you think, this word isn't just sort of having a clear or level head, but it's having things put together, Understanding that, for example, life isn't just a one th about one thing, that there's lots of perspectives, there's lots of ways of looking at things. If you open a systematic theology, for example, you don't just read sovereignty of God and then close the book. They're big works of, that, with lots of words. Why? Because there's lots of doctrines, right? The sovereignty of God being one of them. And there are many others as well. 
A person who knows the will and the word of God is one who takes into account the whole, who can understand and see all of these different parts and makes decisions in life out of that perspective, out of seeing that system. And that word not only has this possible meaning, but I think very strongly inclines this way. Its etymology has more to do with, like, you, the first part of the word means something like safe or whole, and the second part of the word having related, things related or regarding to life. So the etymology would mean something like safe life or whole life. I think what he's getting after here is this kind of sound, balanced, nuanced, measured thinking that then leads to things like self-control, good decisions, discretion, the prudence that's mentioned in chapter 1 of Proverbs that is meant to be given to the simple, the wisdom that Jesus learns and grows in as he comes to understand the world in again in his humanity as he fits things together and pieces things together so that when he is in these very difficult situations, whether it's internally as he's being tempted by the devil right, in the wilderness, or whether it's Pharisees and scribes saying, well, what about this, and what about that, and can't we make this excuse, that all these ways he's able to use the right word, know when to leave, know when to stay, all of these very complicated things. All of us, I think, have read, uh, if you've read the Gospels, um, or even a little bit of them, we've been amazed at Jesus, People ask him these questions, and he almost never gives the answer that we would expect. Why is that? It's because he's super wise. Not just smart, but wise. He can read those people. He can see the situation. And sometimes he does that in his divinity, right? He knows things about them that no one could know except for the fact that he's God. But there are other times, too, when he's acting, well, all the time, he's acting according to his human nature, and which that's seen very clearly. We see him exercising prudence when the crowds crowd around him and he gets on a boat and leaves the scene. Right? He's making judgments and decisions, and those are difficult. And we are often amazed and sometimes perplexed at the decisions he makes and why he makes them. Young men do not often do this. It is the, uh, perhaps a hallmark <laughs> of young men, at least I could speak from my own experience, um, to be simple in their thinking. Maybe it's a trait of young people in general, and maybe also a trait of everyone, too. We notice that this word for prudence or sound-mindedness, whole-mindedness, is used for all these categories of people. Older men are to do this. Older women, likewise, are to do these things. And they are to, in verse 3, we read, teach what is good, and it's the same word. Remember, you maybe you remember me mentioning this before. They are to go to these younger women and bring them to their senses, they are to give them a, a sound understanding and help them to be prudent about their very difficult sometimes situations that we talked about last time. And these women, these younger women, are likewise to be 
self-controlled or sound in mind, prudent, insightful, have discretion in their, all, in their various situations. But without rehearsing all that we talked about last time, that means living out their lives in submission to the Lord in a culture that's confusing and hard. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. And then we get to the younger men. Likewise, urge, a strong word, urge the younger men to be insightful, prudent, gain discretion, understanding, be whole and sound in mind. But I do think um, perhaps there is a particular word here for young men. That's what he says. Um, One of my favorite songs... uh, (laughs) that I, I, I sometimes, some of you have heard me talk about this before, is uh, Billy Joel's Angry Young Man. I don't know if you know this song. It's not one of his more famous ones. But listen to the picture that he paints in these words. He says, there's a place in the world for an angry young man. So this is Billy Joel being wise, right? He looks out on the world and he says, this kind of thing exists, right? And then he describes, he says, with his working class ties and his radical plans, he refuses to bend, he refuses to crawl, and he's always at home with his back to the wall. He's proud of the scars and the battles he's lost. He struggles and bleeds as he hangs on his cross, and he likes to be known as the angry young man. Give a moment or two to the angry young man with his foot in his mouth and his heart in his hand. He's been stabbed in the back. He's been misunderstood. It's a comfort to know his intentions are good. He sits in a room with a lock on the door with his maps and his medals laid out on the floor, and he likes to be known as the angry young man. So you see this picture he's painting. He's, this is a man who cares a lot, this young man. He cares a lot. He's got good intentions. He's got good plans, and he's figured it all out. He knows exactly how this world is, and he's done the things, but it Life just keeps getting him down. It keeps hitting him over and over and over again. And he's angry about it. Why isn't the world like it's supposed to be? Why aren't people doing what they're supposed to do? But he kind of likes it too. There's a pride in it. There's almost a joy in it. Billy Joel then has some self-reflection. He says, I believe I've passed the age I don't know what he means by this exactly. He says consciousness, but, and then he says, and righteous rage. I've found that just surviving is a noble fight. I once believed in causes too. I had my pointless point of view, and life went on no matter who was wrong or right. Now, I don't fully agree with that. Those last lines, it's not a very biblical theology. In fact, it's sort of against a biblical theology. This sort of like van- total vanity to the world. Nothing really matters. There's a kind of emptiness to all things. It goes on whether I'm striving or not, whether I have ideals or not. But at a penultimate level, that is life under the sun. <laughs> That's what Ecclesiastes does describe very well. You can have ideals, you can have purposes, you can think this is the way things ought to be, and yet it doesn't work out, and everybody does the wrong thing, and then you find yourself continuing to mess things up and do the wrong thing, and it can be really frustrating, and sometimes you just go in the room and lock the door and be mad. (laughs) What happens, often through suffering, (laughs) 
often through trials, often through seeing the experiences of others and coming face to face with the hardships of life under the sun, is it brings temperance. The Lord uses it to bring temperance, perspective, moderation. Now, sometimes people will accuse that moderation and that temperance as being, you know, mealy mouth, weak need, compromiser, you know, these kind of words. And it's true. Being moderate, being temperate, being open to perspectives, these kind of things uh, can um, be excuses for not being firm, for not being strong, for not doing the right thing when you know it ought to be done. But how do you know what the right thing is to do? How do you know what the prudent thing is to do? How do you not be simple-minded and say, well, if X is true, then Y is true, and nothing else matters, when there's a lot of other variables? How do you avoid that? Well, the scriptures tell us that we learn wisdom. We learn prudence. We gain understanding. And that, I think, is what Titus is being encouraged, is, is being commanded uh, here to urge the young men toward. Towards prudence. Towards understanding. Towards self-control. In one's mind, in one's actions, and in one's heart. There's a book called Questions of Character. It's a really interesting book in which this uh, professor um, works through various pieces of literature and talks about leadership and life and things like that and sort of lessons that can be learned. And one of those chapters is on sound judgment. And he looks at uh, an, um, uh, an ancient play, um, Antigone by Sophocles, about 500 years before um, Jesus was born. And he looks at these two characters in the book, and, or in the play, I won't go through the whole play, but Antigone and Creon, these two characters, and both of them hold very strongly to one ideal, but different ones. Antigone is all about family. She's going to do whatever it takes to, to bury uh, her father. And Creon is all about patriotism and country, and he's going to do whatever it takes to uphold that national order and to do what is right there. You can see what's coming. <laughs> collision, collision, collision. And it all ends in tragedy. Antigone ends up killing herself, and she happens to be married to Creon's son, who also kills him. It's a Greek tragedy. He kills himself, and uh, Creon then loses his son and heir, and all, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's a disaster. And as you look at the play and as you analyze these things, what you see are both of these people not exercising wisdom. And throughout the book, there are, or throughout the play, there are these moments, these not significant people, the chorus, a sentry, these little minor characters who, will, who kind of will suggest to these two people in various ways, I wonder if it would be wise to just stop for a moment and think about this. And they're like, what are you talking about? And then it all ends in, in disaster. This is what happens when we look at things in an overly simplistic way when we see the world in an overly simple way. And part of that's not your fault if you're young. 
You're young. <laughs> That's what being young is. You're learning. You're growing. You're, you're increasing in understanding just as Jesus did. The wise person, though, does what we read in Proverbs, and he goes and he says, I want to figure this world out. I want to understand it. I want to know it. I want to see it for what it really is. I want to see not just part of the world God has made. I want to see as much as I possibly can and to put it all together in a way that makes sense and holds together. To see the big, bigger picture, as we read in Proverbs, often diverts disaster, leads to flourishing, and helps uh, in so many ways. Instead of being angry and out of control young men, they become mature and steady and helpful and wise men. Daniel's a good example of this. Uh, in um, chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, you might remember Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he not being very wise himself, he goes and he demands that all of his wise men and counselors interpret the dream. Right? He goes and, and they're, they're kind of freaking out. and They're like, we can't do this. And so they're trying to buy time and all this stuff. And he's getting madder. Nebuchadnezzar's getting madder and madder. And he's like, death to them all. Right? And um, so that's about to happen. Then it says that Daniel, in, in wisdom and in prudence, went to, I think it's the captain of the guard. He goes to the captain of the guard and he says, in wisdom and prudence, what's, what's the urgency here? <laughs> and then he finds a way to talk to the king. Perhaps I could speak with the king. An amazing moment, Right? Which you see people acting rashly according to principle, according to all these kind of things, but very rashly and foolishly. Daniel, though, and very interesting, right? He's even advocating on the behalf of these you know, pagan dream interpreters. <laughs> and he says, let's pause for a second. And we know that as a result of his wisdom and his discretion, his ability to have the right word at the right time, present himself in the right way, ask the right question, fit it all together. He's then able to go to the king and interpret dreams and becomes one of the chief you know, counselors and helpers and whatnot. Many other examples in the Bible this way. Let me turn, uh, you can turn with me if you like to 1 Corinthians 14.20. And we see another expression of this just in this uh, one verse. Paul says, um, excuse me, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Paul uses the word from our, our passage also in Romans chapter 12, 3, when he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. See yourself, your abilities, all of these things in perspective, in relationship to the people around you, in relationship to the faith that you've been given. Be wise about this. There's a kind of holistic understanding that takes time to develop and experience, and that's what young men are to be urged to do. One more verse in 1 Peter 4, 7, this word uh, comes up. In a similar way, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be prudent, insightful, whole-minded, right? This word again, self-controlled, 
and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Isn't that interesting? You need to grow in understanding. You need to grow in insightfulness. You need to grow in your ability to discern and decide and, and apply and act. For the sake of your prayers, I'll just let you chew on that one. Why do those connect? How do they connect? How could it be that our thinking and our mindset and the way that we go about gaining understanding would affect our prayers in some way? Yeah, like I said, I'll let you chew on that. Notice a second thing in verse 7 that Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore do this. It's another reason he gives, which is to say that as Christians, we are looking at the world through the perspective of the Scriptures. We don't just see things as all vanity and all vanity or a kind of nihilism or emptiness in all things. No, we see that there is purpose, there is direction, and the end of all things is at hand right now. That's an important piece of information, wouldn't you say, for making decisions? Right, for example, if you think the end of all things is at hand, is your, most pro- is your highest priority going to be making money? I'd hope not. If the end of all things is at hand, is your highest priority going to be accumulating stuff in this life or making sure everyone knows how honorable you are? Perspective, right? These important truths that when they fix in our minds and they create this system of ideas that hold together, then allow us to act in ways that are prudent and not foolish and are destructive and hurtful. The importance of prudence being aligned with God's word, and as I will finish with, with Christ himself, is seen from the fact that this word prudence that's used in the Old Testament is exactly the same word that's used for Satan when he is crafty in, in Genesis. Remember, Satan was a crafty one, a prudent one. Prudent is sort of the flip positive side, but it's the same word. Which is to say there is this skill of a mind to see situations and know how to act. And in one situation, when it is used against the Lord and rebellion for him and for oneself, we could call it evil, <laughs> right? A mastermind, right? We, you know, sort of the, the, your classic, you know, super smart bad guy, right? Who's able to anticipate every moment and trick and deceive. That is, there's a kind of uh, prudence <laughs> in that, but an evil one, which is why it's translated crafty in our Bibles, in English. But it's important to say that this skill of seeing and knowing has to be submitted to the Lord. It has to be given to Him and used for His purposes and according to His truth. So it's not just prudence in general or whole-mindedness in general, but it's one that connects back to this major theme that Titus is emphasizing over and over again. Um, as I turn back there, um, t- so again, Titus 2, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
right living, prudent living, smart living, is always in accord with sound doctrine. That's where it comes from. Now, he doesn't say what all that doctrine is here in this one verse where he just says to urge men to be, urge the younger men to have this, um, to act in this way, to grow in these ways. But he tells us in the rest of the book, he tells us, uh, for example, in chapter 3, verse 4, that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. That's a truth, it's a fact. It either happened or it didn't happen. And if it happened, which it did, then that should change and be a very important data point in your making decisions. A central point. A critical point. When you think about your life and when you think about your decisions, we must think about it in relationship to this fact that the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, has appeared and he saved us. The implications for that are immense. It touches every area of life. But Paul goes on. In 5, he says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That's also important, wouldn't it be? Our relationship with the maker of all things living, the one who brings life and death, the one who, can, uh, who is supreme over all things, he is the one who has saved us, not because of our works, but because of his He goes on, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, what are those things? If I asked you right now, what is the washing of regeneration? What is the renewal of the Holy Spirit? If you don't know, that's something worth knowing. Very important. It is at the core of that sound doctrine that leads to a kind of right thinking and living about life. He gives some explanation, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here we're learning about Trinitarian relationships between uh, the, the Spirit and the Son. He continues, so, and so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who we are, where you're going, what you're doing, these kind of big picture things affect everything. And if you don't believe those, you do believe something else. What is it? What is it that you believe? What is driving your decisions? Is it money, fame, power, beauty, having it like you want when you want it? Or maybe even certain good things like justice, fairness. What's driving our decisions? Is it these things that Paul is mentioning or is it something else? He finishes in verse 8 by saying, The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. All this gospel stuff, all this good news about who Jesus is and what he's done and how the Holy Spirit has come, the kind of changes that are happening in our lives. Why? I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
That good work, that good living, that righteous living comes out of of a knowledge and a foundation that is rooted in the gospel. But it's one more thing than that. It's not just a knowledge about the gospel, but it's faith in it as well. Trust in it. Really, belief in it. If you say you know these things, but don't really live them, is that really knowledge? If I say, perhaps you've experienced this, right? You're in a math class and you sort of feel like you know something, but then when it comes time for the test, you actually can't do it for some reason. I thought I knew this. Well, turns out you didn't really know it. Similar thing happens in the Christian life. Sometimes the Lord puts a little pressure on us in various ways. And we find out we didn't know things quite like we thought we knew them. We thought we believed in the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We thought we believed in his work in our lives. But when the pressure's on, for some reason, we start going other ways and being all crazy. Another thing happens, too. Some people look at their, you know, one or two good works and say, Look, I do know these things. You can see it by my works. But as the saying goes, right, even a clock is right twice a day. Just because, it's, just because you do something good every now and then doesn't mean that the fundamentals are right. It doesn't mean that you are dependable to produce a good result on a regular basis. You can't trust a clock that's broken even if it's right two times a day. And you can't depend and and don't I guess I'm encouraging you not to be self-deceived that just because you do good works maybe even a lot of them that you're a Christian that your faith is really in the Lord because that's ultimately where wholeness is from wisdom is from truth is from when the apostle Paul tells us to fight against sins and fight against the the powers and principalities that are in this world to put on the armor of God. He says to do it in the strength of his might. When we think about young men, let me start again, young men, when you think about yourselves and you say, I know, I want it. (laughs) I'm ready. Teach me, show me, train me. I'm ready to learn. That's a very good thing. You are recognizing in that moment that you are a creature and that you need to grow. Perhaps you're also recognizing that you are a weak creature and you have struggles and inconsistencies and blind spots and sinful habits and all these things that are, that are impeding the way in maturity and growth and in godliness and holiness. But it's important that you also understand that it's not just that you're a creature and you're a weak creature, but you're a sinful creature. And this very, very crafty one is out to get you. And he has a certain level of maturity. He is crafty. He's smart. He's clever. He's a deceiver, and he is very practiced at it. Which means if you strap on your backpack and you go out into the world, you say, I got this. You're going to end up bruised and beaten with your back against the wall, the door locked and feeling lonely and isolated and frustrated and bitter and angry. 
And the only way to avoid that is to recognize not just your creatureliness and not just your weakness, but your sinfulness and your enemy. And to say, this is really more than I can handle. And instead of going out into the world with this kind of pride and hubris that I've got this and I can fix all these things and that sort of thing, you go before the Lord and you say, help me. And you go to those he's using in your lives and you say, help me. And it means when you're suffering and that pressure's on, you say, help me. And when the Lord feels like he's withholding things from you even, and he's not giving you the wisdom and insight and the things you're asking for, you keep going back to him in faith that he will help you and that he is working and you say, help me. Help me, Lord Jesus. Save me, Lord Jesus. Give me a whole mind. Give me a whole heart. Let me live for you. Because if we're trying to just give wisdom and strength and a profit to the flesh, guess which path that's going to put you on? You will be as crafty as your father, the devil. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in this one who grew in wisdom and stature, who was perfectly wise in every way from all eternity in his divinity, who died for your sin so that you might live in these ways, he'll take care of you. He really will help you grow. He's promised to do it. He said he will do it, and he will do it. If you find yourself lacking, ask the Lord. Trust the Lord. And let him work in his own time and in his own way. He will work in you. Our strength is not in ourselves, it's not in our mental abilities, it's not in our power. We put on the armor of God and we fight the fight in the strength of the Lord. We trust his strength and his might through Christ. I think Paul had all these things in mind when he wrote with Timothy, by the way, another one of these co-laborers of Christ, um, in the book of Colossians. Paul says this with ministry on the mind. Speaking of Jesus, he and Timothy write, Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's Paul's pastoral ministry program in a nutshell, one of the various places it's summarized. He wants, and with Timothy and Titus, they want to present the body of Christ mature. He says in the next verse, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. I love that. I toil and struggle with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's Paul's power, that's his strength, that's his toil, that's his struggle. To present everyone mature in Christ, how is he going to do that? He's going to proclaim Jesus, he's going to warn and teach with wisdom itself. Like the older women we talked about last time, he has to have skill in his teaching. He, is go- he himself has to be wise. And he's going to do that by centering on Christ. Him we proclaim. He's going to do that by toiling and struggling 
when his pupils don't get it and they're not learning and they're not growing and the churches are, oh, you foolish Galatians. Did we not go over these lessons? Did you not see Christ crucified, right? This kind of struggle and and frustration. He has to be wise as a teacher and he has to keep on persevering. And the same for us who are students, who are learners. We persevere and we grow in the Lord. I'll end by reading from Proverbs chapter 8. In Proverbs 8, we have this magnificent passage about wisdom that many people have connected with Christ himself. I think Paul describes in Colossians that Christ is our wisdom. He is, uh, let me read that to you. Um, He says in verse 3 of chapter 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you think you're going to get all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge apart from Christ, it's a dead end. So with that in mind, listen to Proverbs 8. I won't read the whole thing. I'll let you finish it later. But beginning at chapter, verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in the front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. From my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom, I have insight, I have strength. By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and the path of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. I'll stop there. Wisdom is not just having a lot of facts. Augustine says that the, the opposite of lack is not, um, is not abundance, but fulfillment. A simple one who needs learning has an empty mind in a way, a mind that is, needs to be filled, fulfilled. 
But a person who has a bunch of facts all rolling around and jottling around and is overflowing with things but doesn't have them put together, that doesn't have things prioritized, that doesn't see all things in light of Christ, neither does that person have wisdom. It's this measuredness, a temperedness, everything in their right place, all the truths, all the facts, all of it centered in Christ. That's what makes us wise. And putting our faith in him is how we receive those things. Trusting him, knowing him, seeking him. It's how we receive those things and how we receive all good things. So be encouraged. It's a good world. God has filled it with wonderful, interesting, fascinating things. Be playful, be curious. Look and understand, seek and you will find. And do it all with faith in him. Seeing all things in his light according to his will and his ways and the things that we learn in Christ and his revelation, the final revelation to us. Let's pray and ask God to grow us. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your goodness to us. We confess our disorderliness, our confusion, our misunderstandings. We confess we have blind spots and struggles. We confess that we even deceive ourselves sometimes on purpose so that we might be blinded to the actual truth, so that we might have excuses for not knowing and not doing and not acting. Lord, we can be so despicable sometimes saying one thing with our lips, but really being after something altogether with our hearts. Lord, wisdom does call. It calls in Christ. It proclaims uh, the goodness of the gospel. In Christ, we have all things ordered together. We have the fulfillment of all things. We see the end of the world, its purpose, its, uh, your plan. We see the, all things in subjection to him. We see the beauty and the glories of your word. Help us to seek after it, to desire and to know him above all things, and to put our comfort in him and in him alone to put our fear in Jesus and in Jesus alone, to put our faith and our strength, our hope, our everything in him. Because in Jesus, Lord, you have given us changed lives, lives that are free and interesting, lives that are are open and ordered, lives that can explore a confusing and dark and sometimes twisted and evil world with confidence knowing that you will keep us in the palm of your hand. Give us discretion, Lord, in these things. Help us to know when to pursue and when to fall back, when to be strong and when to be weak, when to move and when to stay still. Help us not to be um, imbalanced in our thinking and in our hearts. Help us to learn the, uh, the core truths and all of them, as well as their implications. Help us to turn frequently to your word, your special revelation, that we might clearly see um, all that we need for life and godliness. Help us to also do as your scriptures say and to go out into the world and to study the ants and the fools and the skies and learn wisdom. Let us submit all of ourselves and all of our hearts to you according to your grace. For we are sinful creatures.
that don't just need more facts. We need to be saved and fixed and healed and made whole. Lord, we pray particularly for our young men, our younger men. We ask that you would grow them and make them strong and capable who are zealous for good works according to good doctrine and wise practices and wise living. We ask this for them that they might be fathers and husbands and friends and elders and deacons and good workers in their communities and and leaders and, and servants in every station and calling in which you place us. Lord, we ask that you would grow them and help them to learn not only this wholeness of mind, but the self-control that comes from that, how hard it is to control oneself. Help us to to toil and struggle and persevere in the strength of your might. We pray this uh, not only um, for the young men, but for your young women and the older women and the older men. Truly, we have nothing apart from you, and everything good we have in you and in you alone. According to the riches and the measures of the grace that you are giving to us in Christ Jesus our Lord, all praise and glory and honor to you, to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.